millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by, if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 25, Mr. James Duffy. Today's proverb is an old Jewish saying. I'll read it twice. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. Once more. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. The first time I encountered this proverb was in the film Schindler's List. Schindler's List is a pretty memorable film. There's an awful lot. There's an awful lot that sticks with you in Schindler's List. I saw the film only once. I saw it when I was 13 or 14. And when it was over, there were so many images that came back to me again and again. The women in the concentration camps pricking their fingers and rubbing the blood from their fingertips like rouge on their cheeks so that they looked healthier and would not be selected for extermination. I remember Ray Fiennes as Gott, the awful Nazi general, who wakes in the morning and before he even has his breakfast, he sits on his balcony and shoots Jews with a sniper rifle as though um, he were stretching and prepping for the day. And I remember Liam Neeson 
as Oscar Schindler at the close of the film, looking at his expensive wristwatch and wondering how many Jewish lives he could have saved with the value of the watch, if he had been willing to trade the watch, how many people might have lived. There's a lot of memorable stuff in the film. There's a lot of memorable characters, lines of dialogue, images. The music is haunting as well. But it was this proverb that stayed with me for a long time after I saw the film. Stayed with me, although I didn't have a whole lot to do with the proverb for a long time. It was in the back of my head. It was one of those things that you never forget, but you never have a reason to bring up either. The kind of saying, the kind of song that lingers with you in such a way that if someone were to bring it up, you would say, oh, I was just thinking of that the other day. And it would be true that you were, in a sense, just thinking of it the other day, even though you weren't exactly ruminating on it. This proverb stayed with me for a long time after I saw the film, though I don't remember talking with anyone about it. I don't remember talking with anyone about this proverb until I became a literature teacher. So a good 12, 13 years of my life elapsed between the first time that I encountered this proverb and the moment in my life when I began bringing it up on a regular basis. Now, I began bringing this proverb up because I was teaching old literature. The modern world, and I know I encountered this proverb through a modern film, but really, the modern world doesn't give people many opportunities to believe this. The modern world doesn't give people a lot of opportunities to believe that whoever saves one life saves the world entire. And I believe this is because modern people are obsessed with movements. They're obsessed with artistic movements. They're obsessed with political movements, religious movements. And the quote, whoever saves one life saves the world entire, is manifestly opposed to, or just not interested in movements. I'll say more about that later in the show. But the proverb doesn't care about movements. Modern men love movements. For the last 200 years, modern men have been obsessed with movements. When I mentioned in a previous show that I believe that the obsession with movements begins with the French Revolution. With the French attempt to overthrow the old way of doing things and to impose a new order, we have the first occasion in which a systemic problem was identified for which a systemic solution was proposed. And the systemic problem was just the old structure of power. And the systemic solution to the old way of doing things was to cut every one and every old institution off at the knees and just start from scratch, throw it all away, wipe all the checkers off the checkerboard, and reframe the game. And ever since the French Revolution, ever since 
the idea of a systemic solution has emerged. The West, at very least, has been obsessed with movements. A movement is a systemic solution as a club. That's what I want to say a movement is. It's a systemic solution posing as a club. But more on that later. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. Now, the proverb suggests that every man contains the entire cosmos, or that every man is pregnant with the cosmos and may slowly give birth to the entire cosmos over the course of his life. Jesus Christ is the sustaining power of the cosmos. Jesus Christ underwrites all of reality. All of reality drafts on the being of God. In being made in the image of God, man is an icon of the whole cosmos. And when I say he's an icon, I really mean something more like a desktop icon than a holy icon that you might find in a church. I mean that you can click on a man and the whole cosmos opens up or might open up. Now, there are many ancient myths about individual human beings' relationships with the whole cosmos. Within ancient thought, you will commonly find the idea that man is born with a knowledge of all reality and that he simply remembers all that he was taught in utero over the course of his life. I believe it's a, an ancient or a medieval Muslim idea, rather, that God removes the soul of an infant from its body before it is born. This might be Muslim or Jewish. I don't remember which. But the God is so proud of creation, and he laments the fact that death bars a man from seeing all of creation in the course of his short life, that God comes down and removes the infant or the infant's soul from the infant body and takes it in a single moment on a tour of all the cosmos and shows the infant soul all of creation and then brings the soul back and places it in the body. And that an angel slaps the child in the face when it's born, causing the child to be incapable of speaking all that it has seen. The word infant is derived from a word that means unspeaking. And that by the time the infant has learned to speak again, he's forgotten all that he sees, but slowly remembers it. Dante has a bizarre account for man as microcosm, man as the little cosmos. And you get a, a picture of that a bit in the Paradiso. It seems to me that marrying certain medieval ideas on the soul to what Dante presents in his return to God and what it means about his initial departure from God 
at his birth, that Dante believes all souls issue from the Imperion and take some time to traverse the cosmos before they end up in their little in utero infant bodies. And that when man returns to God upon his death, he is only going back to the place that he came from. And that in the soul's traverse of the cosmos from the Empyrean to the earth, the human soul receives the impress or the stamp of all of the spheres that it passes through. And this accounts for Dante's belief that the stars are some indication of human affairs, that you can know something about someone based on the sign that they're born under, because the sign someone is born under suggests something about the impressions that the cosmos made on the soul of a man as it passed from God through the universe to the earth. Now that is, granted, a somewhat far out account of what happens uh, to an infant that grants a knowledge of the cosmos or that makes a human being a microcosm, a little universe. I don't know that you need to buy that idea, though I do. I don't know that you need to buy that idea in order to accept this Jewish proverb, though. Whoever saves one life saves the world in time. I would like to suggest a few ways of proving this proverb that don't rely upon this more outlandish theological, anthropological account of the soul receiving the impress of the cosmos and that being the thing that makes man the little cosmos. Because I think that there are more natural ways of proving this proverb. I don't have a lot of respect. I don't have a lot of interest in modern art. But there are a few postmodern artists, performance artists, that I find intriguing. I like Jean-Claude and Christo, the French couple who back in the 70s and 80s would cover up large things with tarps. I think their work's more interesting than a lot of postmodern artists. I'm also intrigued by some of the performance pieces that Marina Abramovich has done. Back in 2010, Marina Abramovich performed something she called The Artist is Present at the Museum of Modern Art. And this was quite simple. She sat at a table silently all day and allowed anyone who wanted to to come and sit in a chair opposite her and to meet her gaze for as long or as little as you liked. And the average person stayed five minutes. Some people stayed all day. And at some point in the documentaries and essays that were written and the interviews that were done with Abramovich after this performance piece, at some point she made this claim 
which was, if you look at any human face for long enough, you'll begin to weep. Now, this is a claim that rings true to me. I can't say that I've tried this often. I have tried it once or twice. But I've made the task very easy on myself. I have tried on several occasions gazing at the faces of children at funerals for their parents. Photos, not actually looking at children who are present in the room, but it's rather fascinating um, to do a Google search for AP stories on funerals in foreign countries, typically where bombings frequently occur. And a lot of the photos that accompany those articles are depictions of children weeping for their parents. And it only takes a moment with those pictures. It only takes a moment looking at a six-year-old girl attending her mother's funeral before you're overcome with emotion. And I don't consider myself a terribly sentimental person. And yet I can't look at one of these photos and I have them around. I keep them around um, for use in various classes that I teach. I can't look at them for very long without becoming quite upset. Now to look at a human face in anguish is one thing. But even to look at a human face in a resting posture, a resting expression. Abramovich says, even such a picture, or even such another person that you're looking at, if you look at them for long enough, you'll begin to weep. Why? The first thing that comes through in a human face is identity. And I mean the particular identity of the person whose face you're looking at. And identity comes through in the eyes first. It comes through the mouth. And when I say that identity comes through the eyes, I mean not only the color of the eyes, but the way that the eyes respond to what the mouth is saying. And the kind of of averting glance or decisions to close the eyes or open them up wide for emphasis when someone is speaking. That's the first thing I think that comes through in the face, is personal identity. The face is the primary means by which your identity is determined. After your identity comes personality. After you've seen someone for long enough, after you've looked at a face for long enough, you not only see their identity, their name, but you begin to determine something about their soul, their personality, their history. What has happened to them? What kind of life they have lived? 
what kind of emotions they feel most often or what kind of emotions they tend to. But after you see or after you find personality and then personal history, I think after that you start to see human history in a face. Great painters are apt to do this. Uh, painters like Rembrandt, Titian, often express entire philosophies of the human condition just in the face of somebody. Look up um, Dale Velasquez's water carrier. Just an old man carrying a big pitcher of water and a little boy looking at him. I would say that the water carrier's face is as much a philosophical statement on what it means to be a human being as any chapter of the consolation of philosophy, any chapter of the confessions. And a great painter can make claims about all men with just one man and make claims about that man just through his eyes and his mouth, just through his face. So the first thing that comes through in a human face is identity and then personal history and then human history. Somewhere in every human face is Auschwitz, Hiroshima. Betrayal of Caesar. It's there. Every betrayal is somewhere hiding in every human face. And we know this, which is why it's very hard to look at a human face for very long. Maybe this is one of the great things that painters offer us. One of the great gifts of a painter is the opportunity to look at a human face for as long as you like. Most of the time, we look at a human face for no more than two or three seconds in a row before we look away. There is something very embarrassing, very shameful about gazing at another human face most of the time. In a prior age, people were far more comfortable judging a man by his face. And you know this if you've ever read older literature in books written just 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Narrators will say things of a character like, he had a cruel mouth. For the average reader today, this seems like such an awful, judgmental thing to say. A cruel mouth. What are you talking about? Who has a cruel mouth? What did his mouth do to you? Or a character's eyes are described as eyes that, oh, this is what's said of James Duffy, eyes always eager to greet a redeeming aspect of another, but frequently disappointed. 
That's what you can determine just by looking at James Duffy's eyes. But these are judgments that we don't really make of one another anymore. In modern literature, people are fat or skinny, they're ugly or pretty, but no one has a cruel mouth anymore. We don't interpret people's faces. We don't make judgments of people's faces anymore. Maybe because we don't really believe that man is a microcosm. And thus there's nothing really to be gained out of considering the meaning of a human face. A human being is mere matter, mere flesh. He's not the incarnation of some spiritual principle. Unless no one has a cruel mouth. No one has kind eyes anymore. A person is cruel if he does cruel things, but it's inhuman to judge someone as having a cruel mouth. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. We often think, or I thought when I was a child, that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ was a sublime event, but that it was understandable and that it was not mind-boggling love because the death of Christ was such a good deal. I remember thinking this when I was 12 or 13 years old. One life in exchange for hundreds of billions of people was a good deal. Who could pass up this deal? And so I recognized that it was remarkable that Christ had traded his life for the life of the world or yielded his life for the life of the world. But I always thought, you know, he got a, was a pretty remarkable exchange rate here. It's not super surprising that he did what he did. But of course, that's the perspective of somebody who doesn't deeply interpret individuals. That's what a moron teenager says. That's what a kid says. A kid who does not have respect for human life. And I mean, I was in my teenage years, like a lot of American teenagers, I had an absolutely uh, haphazard approach to violence in the abstract. I was intrigued by violence. I thought violence was neat. Uh, I said, as many of my own students have said over the years, when uh, gazing down the difficulties of international politics, well, just bomb them all, get it over with. And that's the kind of thing you say when you're 15. Because you don't believe that whoever saves one life saves the world entire. You don't have a respect for human individuality. You have only respect for your own individuality, which is so mind-boggling that you can't contemplate anybody else's individuality. But Christ doesn't die for the world because it's a good deal. He would have died for one person. He would have traded his life for one person. He doesn't require hundreds of billions in exchange for his life because 
Christ loves us. And that's the way that love perceives the other. Love perceives the other as the entire world. There's nothing outside of that person. I think that this is intuitive. And I think that people believe this on a level for which they cannot articulate or on a level that they cannot articulate. When I was just married, when I had just married my wife, for months after I got married, I would do this thing that probably annoyed my wife to death, but she didn't say so. Whenever my wife, not whenever, but often throughout the day, when she would ask me for something, when she would ask me to pick something up at the store, when she'd ask me to pass her something at the table, I would say, well, for example, if she said, would you get me a butter knife? I'd say, you're my little butter knife. Like, no matter what she said. We need new light bulbs. You're my little light bulb. And I would say this intuitively. I don't know that I ever saw or heard anybody do the same thing, but it, it came quite naturally after I was married. And I mean, I know people have pet names for each other. My little cabbage, you know, whatever. But anytime my wife would bring up something, I would say, you are my little this or that. And it's because my wife was more or less the first person about whom or for whom I believed this proverb was true. That she was or had become the entire world. But that's simply what love does, is it converts a person, the beloved, into the whole world or that person becomes the only acceptable lens by which the world can be seen. Now, there's a sense, I know, in which that's, I mean, that's the kind of appalling thing that newlyweds do. But man, I can see old people saying that sort of thing too. It's a little gushy. But it's the kind of thing that I would believe if I saw or if I read it in a book about some couple that was like 70 or 80 years old. Hand me a better knife. You're my little better knife. I can see it. Christ wasn't trying to start a movement. That's why he didn't care about numbers. Christ wasn't starting a movement. He was starting, he was establishing a kingdom, his kingdom. And kingdoms and movements are nothing alike. They're opposites. Movements are obsessed with numbers. Whereas kingdoms are about people. A person, the king. And the life of the kingdom is bound up in the king. And if the king does well, so do his people. And if the king does poorly, so do his people. Over the years, I've written quite a lot 
in opposition to the idea that classical education is a movement. And the reason why is movements always fail. Movements always have to be strategic. A movement cannot accept the idea that saving one life is the same thing as saving the entire cosmos. Movements are always more interested in saving the world than in saving one life. Because the amount of effort it takes to save a life is just too grand. It's too lavish an expenditure. For all the effort and money spent saving a life, 20 people could be fed for a year. And those 20 people could go on to feed 20 more. That's how movements think. Movements always think in terms of numbers. Movements are always concerned about staying alive. The worry over, over numbers is about this fear of death. Kingdoms are not interested in staying alive. They're propelled forward by something other than a desire for domination. The dominion of a kingdom exists for a greater purpose. I love this proverb, whoever saves one life saves the world entire, because as a teacher, this gives me a reason to care about every class I have. There are some classes I have, and when I say class, I mean 18 students that come into the room at the same time every day. There are some classes that are more bored with the material than other classes. There are some classes that are rife with students who care, who understand what's on the line. But every class I've ever taught had one person. Every class I've ever taught had one person, one student, who was there for the right reason. Not for grades, not for scholarships. Every class I've ever taught has had at least one student who may as well have said to me at the start of every hour, all right, Gibbs, let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There are plenty of hours I have passed as a teacher where I was just talking to that one student. And there are times when that one student was the only thing keeping me going. And in terms of movements, in terms of dollars and cents, percentages, numbers, one student out of 15 who cares? That's not going to keep the movement alive. That's not going to keep classical education going 12 years from now. I don't care. 
That's not my concern. My concern is this one person. Who cares? Who's here for the sake of their soul? You can make a career out of that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.